Bibles, please turn to the sixth chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 6. I know we're looking at chapter 6 over two Sundays, but chapter 6 is really one tightly woven argument about who reigns over us. Before God saves us, we're enslaved to King Sin, who makes us obey its desires. And under that Lord's dominion, when the law comes to us, when we hear the law, when we hear what God has commanded, all it does is increase our trespasses. But the increase of our trespasses, Paul tells us in Romans 5, brought about the superabounding grace of God, if you will, in Jesus Christ. So when we're baptized into Christ Jesus, we're baptized into His sacrificial death. Our old selves buried with Him, raised to a new life in a new kingdom now, where Jesus is Lord. Therefore, in 611, if you remember, Paul says we must consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. This morning, in verses 12 to 23, he sets out to explain just precisely what that means. Chapter 5 spoke of the reign of sin and death over all humanity in general. Here in chapter 6, the focus is on each individual's experience throughout life when Jesus becomes our Lord in this world. The change of lordship that took place when we were baptized into Christ started a war inside of us. We are alive to God, believer. He is our master. But we live every day in a world and in a realm that is still ruled by King Sin and in a body that still wants to submit to that ruler. It's in our individual lives that actually two kingdoms are clashing all the time. To serve the Lord as a slave of righteousness is to be set free from the tyranny of King Sin. So let me pray and we'll begin here. Father, we thank You for Your Word God, we thank You for Your Son and we thank You for Your Spirit. May He now move amongst us and in our minds that we might consider exactly what this text is telling us. And Lord, I pray for those with us that do not believe that You would open their minds also to hear and understand that this is for them as well. That they might be Yours and be forgiven and be washed clean and be made whole in a new kingdom with a new life and hope for eternity that nothing can quench. We pray and ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Please help me preach to this end. Amen. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Why not? Because we're dead to King sin. In verse 11. God says that we're alive to Him now in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord, so we don't let sin keep trying to rule us without a fight. That's what verse 11 is saying. We're called to preach the gospel to ourselves, to tell ourselves that because it's true, sin no longer rules over us. It no longer has dominion over us. And the way we keep sin from continuing to reign in our mortal bodies is by constantly filling our minds with what God is saying or has said is true of us. Think of what's being commanded there, beloved. How or where do we consider things in our minds? The daily battleground of the war between the flesh and the new kingdom is our minds. So whether or not sin will reign in my moral body to make me obey its passions 
is not decided in the way I figure out to, to beat sin or take steps or all these things. It's decided in how we think and what it is that we rely on as true. So what are the weapons God gives to us for our minds? It's what His Spirit tells us in His Word. And if we just went out of Romans 6, we would constantly need to be telling ourselves, I am a baptized child of God who has been buried and raised with Christ. I've been justified by grace through faith in Him, and now I live in a new kingdom whose ruler is none other than Jesus Christ Himself. Now that we are in Christ, we don't let our desires and our impulses go unchecked. We treat our desires like foreign invaders that are trying to take over land to which they have no claim. We must consider even our mortal bodies in light of what God has done for us. The power sin had to make us obey the desires or its desires, which are evil and corrupt and fallen, has been destroyed, but it still wants to rule. But all too often, we try to fight sin with our wills. We just try to, you know, bite down and bear it and fight. And we try to decide the right things. And the problem is that our wills are a part of our flesh. That's fighting fire with fire. It's just going to make the fire worse. There's no power in my mortal body or faculties to combat sin successfully. In chapter 6, we're reading that we must fight sin with the supernatural blade of the truth that God has given to us in the gospel. So in verse 13, he says, Do not present your members, not just our body parts, but our functions, our capabilities. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. In other words, don't report for duty to king sin. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. You present yourself to God not to become righteous, but because we are righteous. Do you see that? We've been brought from death to life. Therefore, we present our whole selves to God. Verse 11 told us we've been brought from death to life. I come to God as His own dear child, redeemed and alive through Christ. Verses 3 and 4 told us in my baptism something He did to me. And he says here, and your members, now that he is my king, to God as instruments for righteousness. God is now the Lord of my mortal body. It is to be used for his will. While in the world, we are instruments for sin or for righteousness. Depending on the master to whom we present ourselves each day, beloved. So I don't. The goal is not to try really hard to make ourselves more Christian. We want to present ourselves to the Lord to be used for His purpose. We literally walk by faith and not by sight, even in the fight against our sinfulness. Verse 14, for sin will have no dominion over you. That's a promise from Almighty God. Since... You are not under law, but under grace. Now, the implication there is that if we were still under the law, sin would still have dominion over us. That's amazing to think about. You would think that under the law, we'd be doing more well if we had more of the law. The Bible says the reason sin won't have dominion over you is because you're not under the law, but under grace. How is that so? 
Beloved, because of the flesh, not because the law is bad. It's because when we hear the law under the dominion of sin or the influence of sin, we hear it as this demand for good behavior that if we meet, God will accept us. To us, the law becomes a means of righteousness rather than as our accuser for not being righteous, which is at essence what the law is. That's why it was given, the Bible tells us. And sin and death use the demand the law makes that we constantly discover we can't meet to enslave us in fear rather than in faith. This is how God's word of law is the antithesis of his word of gospel. One kills, it's holy, it kills, therefore, and it cannot produce righteousness. There's nothing in the command that gives you the power to obey it. It just tells you do this or die. While the other word from God is also holy and gives life for righteousness. Paul brings in the law at this point to show that his argument here in chapter 6 is simply bringing out more of the implications of chapter 5. Verse 14 here is kind of the end of the extended answer to the question in verse 1. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. Why? Because continuing in sin would imply that sin still has dominion over us, and it doesn't. Because we're not under the law. The law was brought in when death was reigning. Remember, when it already did reign. The law is alive and well under the dominion of death, sentencing sinners to condemnation for disobeying it. But in Christ, death does not reign. Jesus reigns, and therefore we have life. Grace is abounding to us already by God's initiative and mercy. There's no need for more sin for grace to come. It's already come. It's already abounded. That was last week. If we were to put ourselves back under the law as the means of killing our flesh and fighting off its desire to control us, here's what will happen. We'll keep increasing our sins. That's what Paul is saying. He's saying if you try to use the law to make yourself righteous, all you're going to do is sin more. So that's not the way to keep sin from reigning is you need more law. You need more commands. You need more this, more this, more this. No, that's a way to guarantee you're just going to keep sinning more and more exponentially. God says the reason that sin will no longer have dominion over us is because grace is greater than the law is for righteousness. Later in chapter 10, he'll say it like this. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So get away from the law as the means of your righteousness before God. It won't work. All it's going to do is shine a spotlight on your guilt. None of us is good enough to obey what God has commanded. We need grace. And this is the way God says under grace, you'll be righteous. You keep trying to be righteous by obedience before me, you'll just keep sinning. That doesn't mean we don't obey. It means we don't look to obedience to know that we're righteous. We look to Christ. If you want to keep sinning, then stay under the law. Pack it on. Create rules the Bible doesn't even have just to make sure you don't break the rules the Bible does have. That's just going to increase your sin. That's where we get in all that crazy fundamentalism about how long a skirt can be and whether or not you should wear makeup and all. Like, what for? What are you doing? 
the power of sin has no dominion where grace is reigning. When death reigns, there's nothing to cover our guilt. Therefore, the law is just an accuser and a killer there. Right? If, if all the gospel was, which it wouldn't be called a gospel, it wouldn't be called good news at all, was, listen, if you obey, I will accept you. If that's, all, if that's the only word we got from God, which is what the law says, do this and you'll live. If that's all God said, everybody is condemned. The best person you have ever known in your life is as condemned as the worst person you've ever heard of in that system. Because even the best righteousness we offer up is not the righteousness God requires. That can only be found in Jesus Christ. Therefore, by faith in Him, we live. Again, when death reigns, there's nothing to cover our guilt. So the law there is just an accuser. It's just a killer. That is where sins increase. I keep trying to do what you say, and I can't. So what that means is you're, you're, you're sinning more. But remember in 5.13 that sin is not counted where there is no law. Christ has fulfilled the law for us, removing its statement of accusation and requirement from over us, canceling the debt that our sin created by disobeying it. Therefore, since we are under grace and our sins are forgiven, the law has no dominion, neither does sin. In baptism, back in verses 4 and 5, Christ is killing that old guilty sin slave, raising us to newness of life. That's what we walk in. That's what we want to see increase as believers, not our sin, but the ongoing effects of his righteousness. Old sinning me is buried with Jesus in baptism. We must consider this to be true. That's how we live, beloved. The way sin wins is through our lack of belief in the gospel, our lack of consideration that we are no longer under sin. We are under Christ. Verse 15, what then? Or what then? Right? Because the argument, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Notice the similar wording between verses 1 and 2 and verses 15 and 16. He's arguing for the same point here in a different way. That is, how do we think of sin and our sinfulness since we're justified by grace through faith apart from the law? How do we understand ourselves? How do we deal with our sin now? Because it doesn't seem like it's going away. In the first 14 verses, the rebuttal against the gospel was that we should continue in sin because Paul said, hey, uh, increasing trespasses brought grace back in chapter 5, verse 16. So the rebuttal against Paul was, so he's telling you to keep sinning. No, no, not at all. Yes, increasing trespasses brought grace, but since they did, there is no longer any need to keep sinning to get grace. You have grace. Now in this next section here, beginning in, beginning in 15, the rebuttal Paul addresses here is, oh, so since we're not under the law but under grace, we should sin. That's how the flesh twists even the gospel. That's how people will respond to the preaching of grace. So you're just saying we should keep sinning. No, we're not. Right? Listen to what Paul is saying. The gospel doesn't serve king sin because what gives king sin its power is the law. 
the law condemns sinners. Paul continues to talk about sin mainly as a ruler over us. Or, or, or used to be. Not being under the law does not mean we should keep sinning. Not being under the law means we no longer have to. We are no longer ruled by the ministry of death, but by the ministry of life. We're alive spiritually in verse 4. The mortal, but the sinning me, is dead. We'd have to pull a Dr. Frankenstein on the old self, if you will, to give into its desires, to give it any power. Now, for a moralist, for a person obsessed with behavior, the law is a means to escape the lordship of sin. That person believes that it's precisely by taking the law upon ourselves that then we can quit sinning. Paul says the opposite. Paul says the opposite. Sinning people caught up in sin need more grace, beloved. Verse 16, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Remember Paul's language of presenting our members as instruments for unrighteousness or righteousness back in verse 13 here. Paul tells us that's because we're slaves of whatever master we obey. We're slaves. And both Paul and Jesus in John 8.34, Matthew 7.24, no man can serve two masters. Both Jesus and Paul imply that we serve, we must serve, do serve one or the other, sin and death or righteousness and life. This idea of autonomy, where I don't serve anybody, that's, that's not an option. That's a pipe dream. To serve self is to serve sin. The obedience Paul speaks of here, by the way, is the obedience of faith that he started out Romans arguing for way back in chapter 1. That's why he is there, to bring about the obedience of faith through the gospel. This is the path that leads to righteousness. This is the master that sets us free. When we're enslaved to sin, we cannot do righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who once, who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. What is he talking about here? What is this obedience from the heart? Beloved, it's faith. That's chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. He who by faith is righteous shall live. So, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, to which you believed. What is the standard of God's teaching now to which we must commit? John 6, teacher, what work must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, believe in the one whom he has sent. Romans 4, 4, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. We were once slaves to sin. Absolutely, believer. It did rule us. But God has brought us to life. How? How did he do that? By grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He not only resurrects us in that, but sustains us in that. To believe the gospel is what it means to be committed to this teaching. This is the truth we must constantly keep considering. 
in order to walk in this newness of life. That it is a command to consider. Here it's commit. I believe that God will make me righteous when by faith I present myself to Him for His use rather than trying to do it myself with my willpower. We sing, I surrender all. Nobody surrenders all. Nobody. So, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin, in verse 18, by the obedience of faith, right? Have become slaves of righteousness. Beloved, notice that. Paul is telling you what you are. He's telling you what God has made you. He is not telling you to do anything. He's telling you what you are. That's the means of the Christian's work. What you are. Your identity. When God set me free from sin, He made me a slave to righteousness. He said that's what I am. We have been set free from sin. Therefore, we are slaves of righteousness. That's the way the Bible talks. This is what God says about us. That's what believing the gospel makes us. That we're transferred from one domain to another. And in this kingdom, this king, this master is righteous and good and gracious. And he sets us free to live now for him. Without the condemnation over us for when we don't get it right. Under the law, when we mess up, we're building up, we're stacking, kindling on our condemnation. Under grace, when we mess up, it abounds to us. It has forgiven us. It makes us clean. And this is meant to do something in our hearts that makes us want and desire to follow Jesus when before we had no desire to follow and obey Him. That desire to be holy is from God, not the will. From God. So it's not our willpower or effort or works that make us slaves of righteousness, but grace through faith. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So back in verses 13 and 16. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. In other words, be what he said you are back in verse 18. By faith, believe that you are that. I need to learn to think of myself in terms of being alive in the kingdom of God's grace rather than one who is ruled by sin. I now present myself to God for His use. Now I am a slave to the righteousness of God that is granted to me by faith. The righteousness to which we are called is not the law as this tyrant accusing us and never enabling us to meet it. That's not what the law is for us anymore. The righteousness to which we're called is a gift that we receive by believing through which the Spirit will bear His fruit in us. Through which the Spirit produces actual obedience. Which under the reign of grace is pleasing to God. So we need not think of our sanctification mainly in terms of our works or our behavior. Although that, of course it affects this. So much as being constantly conformed to this new identity I have as a free person under the domain of Jesus, my new master. Verse 24, when you were slaves of sin, you were free 
in regard to righteousness. So, in other words, under King's sin, we feel no obligation to be righteous. And that sounds like, well, that's, that's, the, that's the dream. That sounds wonderful, right? Verse 21, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. We would think that we're actually free under King's sin because there we can do what we want. That's what we think freedom is. And what did that do to us? What is it doing to us if we're still living like that? Or Paul asks what the real benefit of that alleged freedom is. He's asking, is it freedom to be able to do what you want when doing what you want without reservation leaves you empty and ashamed and ends in death? Are you really free? Sounds like you're a slave to something that is cruel. And the gospel calls you and I out of cruelty, out of bondage, out of chains, into Christ, into life, into righteousness. Not that we're better than other people or become more better, you know, better than other people. We're placed into Christ. My life of obedience is a matter of enjoying the gift of grace I've been given because I'm free. And we still have this slave mentality spiritually. Are we really free under King's sin? Verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get. There it is. I don't know how else to say it. The fruit you get. So who produces spiritual fruit? Who produces the fruit of the Spirit in me? It's fruit I get. I get it. It's a gift to me. When love Mercy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. When those things come out of me, Tony Romano has nothing to do with it. The Spirit is making me into the image of Christ. When good works come out of a believer, that's what's happened. The Spirit is in there giving fruit. What do I need? I need to look at God, look at Christ, believe the Word. I don't produce the fruit of being a Christian. It's a gift of God's Spirit to me that He produces as we present ourselves to Him. That's the way. We have to lay down this effort to be what God has made us and realize that we are what God has made us. So God, change my life. Let me live in light of the fact that I am finally free. And this Master that has made me a slave loves me. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and it's in eternal life. We are sanctified. We don't sanctify ourselves. We are being sanctified. And it's in eternal life. Verse 23, 4, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God, not the wages. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is better to be a slave under a master who sets us free than a master who will make you think you're free until he kills you. We have become slaves to God, beloved. And as his slaves, the fruit, the benefit of serving him is sanctification. It is set apartness to God. And the result of that, where that leads, is not just 
to freedom here and now in my daily experience, no longer under the tyranny of king's sin, but eternal life. Because in verse 23, 4, the wages of sin living under that master is death. Both masters, sin and God, give us something for serving them. King Sin pays us for serving him with death. God does not pay us. We aren't those kinds of slaves. God doesn't pay us for services rendered. God gifts us with life and freedom. Here and now and everlasting. Out of pure grace. You won't tap into that in your mind until you quit working to be what he has already made you. Beloved, that's ultimately what has happened. This is a command to rest in the truth of the gospel. The Spirit will produce the fruit in you. You don't need me or anyone else to track it for you. None of us need to be measuring each other. And we're going to go through times where there's a lot of fruit and times where you can't find any. What remains constant is what God has told me is true and what God says I am and what God has done to me and for me. That never changes, regardless of how much fruit is coming out. And Paul is telling us, you want fruit. You want righteousness. He's just telling you how to get there. Stop trying to work to get there. It's not like salvation fuses the goodness I could do without knowing anything about Jesus with some spiritual power that then makes it acceptable to God. There are people that hate God, want nothing to do with God, don't believe there's a God, that do the same things believers can do that are good works every day, that there's nothing in them to make us righteous. Paul reminds us here that the believer's righteousness is not our work that we give to God to get a reward for. The command here above all else, above all else is to believe these words. There's not enough gospel. There's not enough talk about what God has done for us in Christ and who He is for us in Him every day. That's where the breakdown is between my experience and my obedience. That's where it is. I don't believe the gospel. Surely it's not that simplistic. Yes, it is. Believe what God says He has done for you and made you. Consider who your Lord is now. Beloved, never forget this. All right, We're complicated people. This life is basically pure tension. Don't forget what Jesus has done for you. What we're conscious of in this walk of faith is our experience of this change of lordship. Right now we feel this war in us and at times it really makes us question whether or not we're even saved. How could I have those rotten desires if I'm a believer? Right? The problem is we aren't often conscious enough of what God has told us salvation does. And what He's done to us to us by baptizing us into Christ, as Romans 6 tells us. Do, do we realize what happened when that happened? Because it's, it's fixed our destiny. It's fixed it. We exist in this tension of the already and not yet of what Jesus has accomplished. So, while there, while trying to adjust to this change of lordship, let us keep in perspective the difference between our experience and the object of our 
faith. We have heard the word. If you've been baptized, you've felt the water on you. You've experienced that. But what we believe and what we hope for and what makes those things what they are, those things are unseen. Now. And that makes them no less real. According to God's Word, it makes it more real. For it is only that which is unseen that is eternal. Receive the Word of God, all of you. Receive the promise. Repent of your sins. Come home and be set free.